There's a slow-moving crisis happening in the field of psychology. This is mimicked in some ways by other fields, other fields of inquiry, other scientific pursuits. But in psychology in particular, this slow crisis has suddenly sped up over the last couple of years. In 2015 in particular, there was a paper, a series of papers really, published that indicated that efforts to reproduce some very fundamental research that were done a few decades ago were having trouble coming to the same conclusions. In fact, only 40% of the time were they able to reproduce the conclusions that were garnered by these past experiments. And that is absolutely jaw-dropping. That's incredible. Because that means that these studies that were done, from which we derived data and from which we tried to derive truth, were actually feeding us, potentially at least, mistruths. Because just that we weren't able to reproduce them doesn't mean they didn't in fact stumble upon the actual truth of the matter. But it does mean that we cannot as easily or comfortably defend these conclusions that they came to. And in one case in particular, this is making a crazy amount of waves. Because the concept of ego depletion is really foundational for a lot of work that's been done since then, in terms of cognition, in terms of how the brain works, and how we interact with each other and interact with the world and make decisions. And this study is probably something that you've heard about, or you've heard about one of the studies that have focused on ego depletion and either supported it or tested it in some new way. The original study was done about 20 years ago, and it was conducted with fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies and a bowl of turnips. And the idea was that they had these test subjects come into the room, and they would sit there and they could smell these cookies, and they would allow that fragrance to wash over them, and in some cases would actually have the cookies there in the room. And they were told that they could just eat the turnips. And so the idea is that they were using their force of will, they were using their willpower in order to avoid eating the cookies or to avoid doing something that would be an instant gratification type of situation. In most of these experiments, the test subjects were then given a series of puzzles to complete, and the people who did not have to use so much force of will made far more attempts on the very difficult puzzles than the people who it was supposed had their willpower drained from resisting the urge to eat the cookies and instead eating the turnips. This has been reproduced using all kinds of different sweets and junk food. The, the famous marshmallow experiment is another example of this. The idea in that case was to get children to sit with a giant, delicious-looking marshmallow for a period of time after being told that they would get two marshmallows if they waited long enough. Basically, it was testing to see if the kids would put off gratification in order to get a superior reward eventually, and then seeing what that told us about willpower. Well, what that term, ego depletion, means is that the conclusion of these studies and hundreds of others like them was that willpower is actually a muscle, metaphorically at least, is a muscle. It's something that we can exercise and that we can get better at using 
And the more we use it and the more we strain it like a muscle, just pushing it to the boundary, not quite injuring ourselves, but pushing it to the point of discomfort. And that over time allows us to grow stronger, to grow bulkier, meatier sources of willpower. And another derivation of these studies was that they believed that you could actually refuel your willpower tank, like in a car, by using glucose, by using essentially sugar. And the idea here was that your brain uses glucose, pure glucose, as fuel. That's what allows you to think, and it uses a lot of glucose. So the thinking here was that exercising your willpower drains the fuel more than other activities that you might undertake because it's difficult. You're straining yourself, just like working out a muscle. And so by refueling that tank, you're giving yourself more fuel, more resources to utilize, and as such can hold out longer and can put off gratification, can do difficult things, knowing that it will be good for you in the future. Unfortunately, the experiments that led to these conclusions, these are the experiments that are now in serious question. Only 40% of them could be successfully reconducted. And that means that 60% of them, they conducted these experiments again and got very different results. And that implies, at least, that even though it doesn't necessarily mean that this theory of ego depletion isn't true, we cannot be certain at all that it is true. We don't have the data to back that up. We don't have the evidence for that. The scientific method compels us to be able to have evidence for these things that we want to believe. And just because it seems really cool, and it seems like really convenient for it to work that way, because it makes perfect sense, there's a nice metaphor for it and everything, that doesn't mean that that's the way that it works. And so we find ourselves with the rug pulled out from under us, because suddenly this thing that underpinned everything, this base layer of information that we thought that we had, turned out not to be secure, turned out to be a very fragile foundation. And that has destabilized everything that we've built on top of it in the decades since then. Now, whether or not we can explain why and give a definitive data-based answer for why it's difficult to put off instant gratification and why some people seem to have more willpower than others and why exercising it might seem to make you better at it over time, it's still something that I think most of us are aware of. We are aware of what we're capable of in terms of willpower and how different variables might change that and how we've utilized a great mass of willpower in certain circumstances in the past and how we've failed to do so in other circumstances as well. And what we're really doing when we make these types of decisions, when we utilize our willpower or fail to utilize our willpower, if we indulge in instant gratification or put it off for potential better rewards later, what we're doing is deciding between the here and the now, the benefits of today, the benefits of this exact moment and this exact version of ourselves getting those benefits, and the benefits of tomorrow, a potential even better situation for a future version of us. And this dichotomy is a really interesting one because it's an incredibly difficult choice to make in certain circumstances particularly when the needs of today conflict with the needs of tomorrow, or at least the perceived needs of tomorrow. When the hunger, or the craving, or the boredom of the moment conflicts with our desire to be healthier, or fitter, or more entertained at some point in the future. 
and this last one is incredibly common, when the morality of what we'd like to achieve someday conflicts with the conveniences of today. And that's really what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about the conflict between what should be, or what we think should be, and what actually is here and now. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I'd like to get back to the topic of delaying gratification in a somewhat asymmetric way. The article that I want to start with today that I want to unspool a little bit and add context to is called Peter Thiel versus Gawker, The Flame War's Logical Conclusion, and it's over at The Atlantic. And this piece is interesting because it neatly sums up something that happened a month or two ago, where the internet was kind of dominated by this conversation about a struggle that was taking place between a Silicon Valley libertarian billionaire and one of the most famous or perhaps infamous new journalism entities in the world. So Peter Thiel is known for his many investments in many of the companies that we tend to take for granted today, like Facebook. He was one of the founders of PayPal. So he's been involved in a lot and he's perhaps even better known in the tech set for his libertarian views and wanting to build kind of a tech utopia and things of that nature. A bit of an eccentric guy with very strong ideas and opinions, and as a result, he tends to be somewhat divisive. Gawker is the same, but in a different way. It it also tends to be very divisive, but it tends to be divisive because it presents a massive amount of clickbait of somewhat low-quality articles with very catchy headlines that get people to click. And so they've done quite well in the advertising-based economy that we all exist in when we are participating online. Now, that's not to say that they don't do actual, real, legitimate, high-quality journalism as well. It's just that the ratio tends to be somewhat skew. And Gawker, in particular, uh, as opposed to its subsidiary companies that tend to be focused on some genre of news or journalism or another. Gawker is definitely the the tabloid of the group. It's kind of equivalent to something that you'd find at the grocery store checkout about celebrities and gossip and things of that nature. And that's what brought these two entities, this tech billionaire and this online publication, into conflict. Around a decade ago, Gawker outed Peter Thiel. They wrote an article about him being gay and not being publicly gay. And that's definitely a douchebag move, no matter who you are and what you're doing. Just to out somebody is a pretty douchebaggy thing. And so you can understand his consternation about this and his desire to level a degree of revenge against Gawker. Well, he eventually did, but it took a little bit of time. And when it came, they they certainly didn't see it coming. In fact, the rest of the world didn't see it coming either, and it only came out after the fact, once the knife was kind of driven into their heart, that it was Peter Thiel who was responsible. Because there's a third person involved in this story, and this person is a former wrestler named Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan 
was one of these 90s celebrities that continued to be somewhat relevant in the, the 2000s because of his 90s celebrity and the nostalgia that has helped define pop culture in the 21st century thus far. And he had a bit of a scandal not too long ago wherein a sex tape was released of him having sex with his friend's wife. And there's a whole lot more to this story. Supposedly the friend knew and they had agreed to record the tape. Like there's all kinds of fun Hollywood-esque, celebrity-esque gossip around this. So if that's your thing, go check it out. If you want to just know the full story, go check it out. There's a lot of links to the subplots of this main plot in the article that we're unspooling here. But the main point of including Hulk Hogan is that Hulk Hogan ended up suing Gawker because they published the sex tape. And they did it for really the same reason that they claimed that they outed Peter Thiel. They claimed it was in the public interest to know this. Now, how it is in the public interest to know that a private citizen is gay or how it is in the public interest to see Hulk Hogan having sex, that is beyond me. But that's the claim that they used. And so that was their justification for publishing this clickbaity article, this clickbaity video. And Hulk Hogan sued. And he made some interesting choices with his lawsuit, though. Because he sued, and then he, he didn't just back away as soon as it was clear that he could make a certain amount of money. He stuck in it for a very long time, and then he decided to drop certain charges as soon as it became clear that Gawker's insurance would cover the lawsuit and the payout if those particular points were included in the litigation. And so he pulled those as soon as it became clear that they could basically have their insurance pay for the entire lawsuit, which implied that he wasn't just looking for money, he was looking to destroy Gawker. After the fact, and this, this only came out in an interview with Peter Thiel near the end of the trial, it came out that Peter Thiel had been funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker. And so that was why he had been able to, uh, you know, this 90s wrestling personality, had been able to level such a long, drawn-out, expensive lawsuit against this internet titan. And this is kind of the crux of the story here. Because we come to a point where, looking at all sides, nobody's perfectly innocent. And I'll tell you why. So Gawker, perhaps, is the most obvious villain here. This is an internet publication that is leveling slanderous accusations at people all the time. It is constantly publishing racist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic pieces, doing it supposedly in the air quotes, public interest. And it could even be argued that they are lowering the caliber of public discourse on the internet, though I wouldn't lay the blame for that squarely at their feet because they are certainly not the only ones doing it and not even the largest of the groups that are doing that. And so that's them. They are a slanderous, often kind of vapid and vacant publication that is dragging other people's names through the mud and revealing things about them that probably shouldn't or needn't be revealed to serve their own purposes. And then there's the opposite side, Peter Thiel. And here's a guy who, again, is very divisive in a lot of different ways and who has decided to let a slow-burning revenge justify the destruction 
of a publication. And whatever you might think of that publication, there are hundreds of people who work there. And they are putting out legitimate journalism in addition to the, the kind of fun, clickbaity, vapid stuff. And so whether or not an individual, just one person, should allow their desire for revenge because they felt that they were hurt, should allow that to justify in their mind the wholesale destruction of a business is very, very questionable. But that's not the worst part here. The worst part is the potential long-term consequence. It could be argued that the short-term consequences here are relatively inane compared to the long-term consequences. And in the short term, the people who suffer are the people who work for Gawker, really, more than anybody else. I think Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan have already suffered because of what was revealed, but, but now it's the, the employees at Gawker who are predominantly on the receiving end of this blow. But the long-term consequence here is that what Peter Thiel has revealed and what he's developed and shown, not just how it works, but that it does work, is a mechanism for a wealthy or well-connected individual to destroy a journalistic publication that they don't agree with or that they want revenge against. Now, the value of having a strong press in a given culture is that they serve as a counterbalance against power, against aristocracy, against different sorts of power, I guess you could say. Because here's money and here's connections. You know, there's these things that various aristocrats, business owners and politicians and the like, that's the type of power that they wield. Whereas journalists and people who fit into adjacent categories to journalism even, they have the power of their voice box. They have a soapbox to stand on and they have the written word and increasingly other tools like videos and GIFs and such. And so that's what they have to counter all of that money and all of that political influence and power and guns, really, when you come down to it, when it comes to the, the political power wielded by certain politicians. And if these people, these powerful people with the traditional power, can suddenly come out of nowhere and sue a journalistic entity into nothingness, and can do it from behind the scenes. They don't even have to have their name on it. They can support somebody else and fund their legal action against a newspaper or a website or an individual journalist, conceivably, and knock them out of the picture, either because they want revenge or because they're trying to prevent them from reporting something. That is a very dangerous precedent to set. You don't have to think very hard to think of all of the times that powerful people would have loved to have this tool in their toolbox to counter the accusations or to knock out the capability of leveling accusations uh, of these newspapers that are, that are nipping at their heels and keeping them from operating and abusing their power with complete autonomy. And so what we have here is a situation where the short-term consequences are not great for the people directly involved, but the long-term consequences are truly tragic if they play out the way that it seems that they're going to play out. Because what it does is weaken the fourth estate. It weakens the press's ability to safely go after potential abuses at all levels of the totem pole. 
And it does so in a way that doesn't have any scalpel-like neatness to it. It doesn't go after just the perpetrators that are producing the horrible clickbait or producing the articles that are outing individuals who are not public figures. It goes after everybody who's involved. And so that means that this revenge tactic, in this case and probably in future cases as well, will not just knock out the slanderous person involved. It will also eliminate the paycheck of all of the people doing incredibly serious journalism as a result. I think it's important to look at any story in this way. To look not just at the immediate or or very short-term consequences, but to look at the long-term consequences of a thing or an act as well. Because very often it's two different stories depending on what you're looking at, and both stories are potentially quite relevant. There's another current event that's happening right now that's quite relevant to this, and it has to do with the election here in the United States. What we have here on the Democratic side, and I I won't even get into the Republican side right now, but on the Democratic side we have Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, who have been running a relatively tight race, much, much tighter than both of them thought it would be, I think. And a big part of those numbers that are being shown is that Bernie brings something to the table that hasn't been seen in politics in quite some time, or at least not at this level with this level of popularity, with this type of groundswell, particularly of young people. And so we're at a point now, and this this is going to date this episode, but what's happening right now in the news is that Hillary is the presumptive nominee. And so she's got the support of the party, and people are falling into line behind her, and she's got the majority of the Democratic support. But there's still a large number of people who are supporting Bernie, and some of them are even threatening to not vote for Hillary if the Democrats leave Bernie out in the cold. And this is something that is just unthinkable for a lot of people who are in the Democratic Party, because in this election, not voting for Hillary is tantamount to voting for her opposition, which is a guy, uh, Donald Trump, who is the polar opposite in most cases of the Democratic platform. Not in every case, but, but in most things, he's about as far away as you can get from, from what most Democrats tend to believe on a lot of different issues. And so a, a lot of the Democratic Party is looking at this and just saying, guys, you, you Bernie supporters, why on earth are you saying this? How can you possibly say something like that? Like, look at the consequences of your action. If you do not fall into line here, even if you don't really like Hillary, she's much closer to what you want and is much more likely to get you a lot of the things that you want than the other guy. So why are you still fighting this? Well, what it comes down to, understanding this comes down to what we were talking about before. It's short-term and long-term consequences. The people who don't understand why the fans of Bernie are not falling into line behind Hillary are failing to see the long-term consequences here. And the long-term consequences of falling into line behind a more established player, somebody who's been in politics forever, who is kind of a politics-as-usual type of candidate, which is great for a lot of people, but for the people who support Bernie Sanders, that's not what they're looking for. And so for them, what they're seeing is if we support Hillary, even though she gives us a lot more of what we want, potentially, we are not changing anything. And the long-term consequence of us falling into lockstep 
is that everything that we've been fighting for, which is a fundamental change in the way politics runs, is lost. We, we didn't manage to do anything. And as a result, this election was not as impactful and historic as it could have been. So on the flip side, the people who cannot fathom this are looking at more of the short-term consequences. And the short-term consequence, in this case, is that maybe the election is lost. Maybe you lose to the other side. And so they're not even considering those longer-term consequences. Or they are, and they're not considering them to be as important as this clear and present danger of losing this most immediate election. And that's their concern above and beyond changing the way that elections happen in the future. Now, none of these people are wrong. It's just that some are farsighted and some are nearsighted. And their individual concerns and preferences and backgrounds, really, uh, everything about them determines whether they're seeing the long-term or the short-term more clearly. But I do think that this conversation and a lot of other conversations around politics and everything else would be a lot more productive if we did consider both of these things, both long-term and short-term consequences, and recognized that the people who disagree with us in some ways, it may be that they're just looking further out onto the horizon or looking closer to their faces, and that there may be some middle ground somewhere in the middle that would allow everyone involved to get more of what they want. Maybe not, but, but in a lot of cases, potentially. And I think that's a conversation that isn't as often had because it's not as sexy. And again, it doesn't you know, sell as many ad clicks. I've written a bit about this in the past, this idea of looking at short-term versus long-term consequences. I wrote a book about the time that I spent in the Philippines. And in that book, there's a chapter called Shoulds and Ours. Basically, the way things should be versus the way things are idealism versus practical reality, in essence. And the comparison that I make in the book is between the way people operate in, say, Manila versus the way people operate in developed Western countries like the United States. You look at something like traffic. You look at a traffic light, and we have the same traffic lights in both places. There's red and yellow and green. But in the United States, if the traffic light is red, you stop. And you stop whether or not there's any cars coming from other directions. Even if it's a completely vacant intersection except for you, if you see that red light, you stop. Because our ideology is that we should all obey the laws and we're all safer if we adhere to these laws no matter what. Even if there's a good excuse, a good exception to tell the cop later, officer, I went through the stoplight because there were no other cars, that doesn't get you out of a ticket because we are trying to live up to an ideology, a perfect way of living, a perfect world that we are trying to move toward. Now, on the flip side, if you go to Manila and you pull up to a traffic light and it's red and there's nobody else coming, you just go right through. This is a very practical approach. It takes into account the here and the now. And you're able to look at that intersection and say, there's no one coming. It makes no sense for me to be here. And you can just blaze right through. And that's perfectly legitimate. And what it comes down to, again, is a different modus operandi, a different ideology, a different set of concerns behind our actions. 
What they're looking at there in places where you focus on what is, you focus on the ars rather than the shoulds, you're, you're looking at concrete reality. And you're not necessarily thinking about, well, what does this mean for the future of civic life and law? Because you're, you're a lot more concerned about what is in the here and the now. You want to be concerned about concrete, tangible reality around you. Whereas in other places where a lot of those everyday concerns are taken care of, or at least considered to be, presumed to be taken care of, you don't worry so much about it. Another example from my time there, when I was moving to a home in a place called Mayuyao, which is in the middle of nowhere, hours away from civilization, we were driving through a mountain road and there was a mudslide. And immediately, everybody else in the van that I was in and everybody in a nearby town came out and started digging with shovels, with their hands, with whatever they had. In the U.S., that might happen in some places, particularly in smaller towns. But in a lot of places, I think most people would just complain, like you'd call somebody, call, you know, the the landslide sheriff or whoever it is whose responsibility it is to take care of this. And this is something that's often derogatorily referred to as a nanny state where everyone demands to be taken care of all the time. But what it is, it's just, it's a different way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world in such a way that someone should be responsible for this. It doesn't make sense that somebody isn't. I'm specialized in what I do, and there's somebody else who's specialized for this. And again, it's, it's kind of a future first type of approach because it means ideologically I shouldn't have to get out and dig even though the practical reality is is that I and everybody behind me on the road will get through much faster if I do. Another excellent example of this is kind of a branded one. T-Mobile is a phone carrier here in the U.S. and they have a promotion called Binge On and essentially what this means is that anybody on their service can get an unlimited amount of video and music and things of that nature streamed to their phone. You use your cell phone signal to stream Netflix or Amazon Video or Spotify or whatever else. Any one of their partnered networks. And what those networks do is deliver kind of a lower bandwidth version of those videos or whatnot to your phone that's made for your phone, sized for your phone. And that doesn't then count against your monthly allotment of high-speed internet. And it's a very clever gimmick. It's something that I didn't think that I would ever use, but I found it quite useful on long train trips in particular. But it's something that, although charming in the short term, has very questionable implications for the long term. There's a concept called net neutrality, internet neutrality. And essentially what internet neutrality is all about is ensuring that nobody gains a fundamental infrastructural advantage on the internet, which essentially means that nobody should be able to go faster than anybody else, just at the default level. On the cables and transmission of data level, nobody should have an advantage over anybody else. And so that means that like Netflix should not be able to come in and pay your cable provider an extra amount of money so that their signal goes faster. That shouldn't happen according to the tenets of internet neutrality. And although at first it sounds convenient and wonderful in the same way that this T-Mobile Ben John thing sounds convenient and wonderful, but the long-term consequences of this are potentially devastating to the concept of an open internet. And the reason is, is that you could then have 
these incumbents, these people who are already in power, who have a lot of influence and who have a lot of money, they could create a secondary highway system on the internet that only they get to use. And what that means is that all of their services would go faster because they can afford to pay for it, and everybody else, all of their competitors, could not. And so that internet then would become the sluggish, ghettoized internet that would not be kept up quite so well. So then any upstart company, anybody who comes in and tries to challenge Google or Facebook or Netflix, would be at an immediate disadvantage because they wouldn't have the resources to pay for these superhighway tickets, basically, to get on the faster track. And we're already starting to see this a little bit. I, I started to feel it myself when I was using this service. The subtle, soft way that this starts to influence a consumer's decisions. Because when I've got my phone, and I know that this selection of 100 or so services won't count against my plan, I consider using those first. Even though I might have others that might have other benefits, the first thing that I look at are these services that are on this network that doesn't cost against my plan. And that type of thinking is the same type of thinking that conceivably would occur if we had a divided internet where you could pay for faster speeds or, or other benefits. And so short term, very beneficial to have some of these things, but the long term consequences could be devastating. And it could eliminate competition, could lower the quality of everything on the internet, could lessen the ability of some upstart new company with a better idea and a better way of doing things to ever get traction. Because people like me who are using the binge on service or who are potentially using a service that is divided into this slower and faster track would never see it. We wouldn't even look at it because it's on the slower bandwidth or it's on the network that we don't get for free through our plan. One last example of this that I want to give, it, it's something that I actually talk about quite a bit on this podcast, I find, but it's something that's in the news a whole lot right now, too. So I think it, it applies to a current events podcast. Uh, this topic is post-scarcity economics. And this is something that, depending on who you talk to, it's, it's either a great idea or a terrible idea. But either way, it's an idea that hasn't happened yet, and there would be a great distance to travel before it ever could. Depending on where you live in the world, you live in a society that is some version of capitalism, most likely, that, that has kind of become the dominant organizational system to deal with the scarcity that we have today, the scarcity of resources. But moving to a post-scarcity society, which we conceivably could if we further developed our autonomous systems and developed true or even much better soft AI Things of that nature are all on the horizon, and there's a chance that we could reach a point in the foreseeable future, in, in my lifetime maybe, where scarcity is not an issue anymore, or at least it's not the issue that it is today. And we all have everything that we need. We, we don't have to work anymore. That tends to be one of the major attributes of a post-scarcity society, is that you are no longer required to work in order to participate in society because you have the stuff that you need. Maybe you work more on top of that because you want more, but you've, you've got a roof over your head, you've got food on the table, you've got those things. So the fundamentals are taken care of. And that, it sounds wonderful, and it would be wonderful if we could get to that stage, but unfortunately, the space between here, where we are now, in a scarcity-based society, and getting to a post-scarcity society there's a gulf in between these two statuses that we don't often talk about. 
And this is a real issue, and it's a major issue that informs the discussion that we're having about whether or not to even move in the direction of post-scarcity. And I'll tell you why. It it has to do with long-term versus short-term thinking. Those of us who are fortunate to be in situations where we, we have money coming in and our jobs are not likely to be replaced by robots anytime soon, we're in a situation where we can afford to think, hey, how cool would it be to develop this type of society? What changes do we need to make? What sacrifices would be made? And chances are we could pretty easily ride the wave over to the next way things are going to be. And there's always the chance that that's not correct, but we feel safe enough and secure enough in our economic situation, maybe familial situation. We, we feel like we have a support net that we're able to think these thoughts and not feel terrified by them, not feel threatened by them. But there are other groups, and particularly like blue-collar workers and, and other groups who are consistently already being replaced by automation, that are really concerned anytime they hear about these ideas. Because to them, no one working doesn't mean liberation from the bonds of having to work. It means not having a paycheck to put food on the table. That's the reality of not having a job with a lot of socioeconomic classes. That gulf between these two statuses of scarcity and post-scarcity would be a gulf wherein a lot of people would probably suffer. I, I don't see this being a situation where it's a quick transition, where suddenly all the governments say, okay, yeah, totally, that's fine. You don't need us anymore. We'll change over. And I don't see it as a situation where all of our industry and all of our businesses and everything are able to immediately switch over either. It's not like one day you're in a capitalistic society and the next day you wake up and it's post-scarcity. No, there's going to be a transition period. And during that period, the people who are most likely to suffer the consequences of this transitionary stage are the people who are currently under threat of being replaced by automated systems. And so this is why there's been a resurgence, I think, in the popularity of ideas like minimum basic income plans, where the government pays out a certain amount to every single citizen every month, no matter what, because it's one possible solution to alleviate some of the damage caused by this type of transition. Conceivably, at least. Again, this is very untread territory, but it's something that could help alleviate that transition. But once more, this is something that informs this conversation, and it's not typically something that we talk about. The people who are futurists and who are excited about changing things and trying to get to a post-scarcity society tend to have conversations about the practicality of making it work to begin with not necessarily talking about the consequences to people who are not other futurists and potentially technocrats or people who are able to spend their time thinking about such things that are not here and now and not practical reality, are able to worry over concerns above and beyond putting food on the table for their family. Whereas the other people, the people who are mostly concerned about getting that paycheck and making sure that they have enough money to put food on the table and to pay their rent and their utilities, to have enough put away just in case the car breaks down, they're not necessarily capable of seeing beyond that because their time and energy is so focused on trying to get through the day and trying to make sure that the people they care about are taken care of. And as a result, when we have conversations about things like this, we're very often talking past each other because neither side is capable of or willing to see the other side and to take it as seriously as their own. 
because it's just a very different set of concerns and very, very different worldviews. Unfortunately, like, like so many things I talk about on this podcast, I don't really have any true solution to this. This awareness, I think, this awareness of, of this particular type of context, of the long-term and short-term consequences being important variables in every conversation that we have and in every story that we read, every piece of news that we read, considering these things certainly help because then at least we're aware of why people think differently than us. And then rather than looking at them and thinking that they're stupid or just are not as brilliant as us to be able to see the way things actually are, we can look at them and say, oh, well, they just probably have these very different sets of concerns. I wonder how we might be able to take those into consideration as well and potentially find a middle ground, a gray area between the black and white that we're talking past each other. Something else that tends to help to those ends, something that that helps me at least to consider such things, is fiction. Whether it's books or movies or plays or video games or whatever, being able to experience a storyline, to experience a point of view that's different from your own, is an incredibly valuable exercise. And it, it helps with that type of empathy. Not empathy in the sense of just being able to you know, feel somebody else's pain or emotions or whatnot, but empathy in the sense that you can understand why different people would feel the way that they feel, even if you don't feel that same way. And that tends to allow a person to take a whole lot more, or to take many more perspectives into consideration when they are forming their own perspective and their own opinions and trying to figure out solutions to problems, because then they're actually considering a lot of different problems rather than just their own. Willpower is an interesting thing, because it's something that allows us to delay gratification until later, and potentially reap better rewards as a result of that. But I also find it's something that, again, whether it's a muscle that's flexed or a fuel reserve that's used, it takes a whole lot of willpower to consider other people's perspectives and standpoints and really take them seriously, to allow yourself to accept that these are points of view that other people have and value just as much as you have and value yours. It's absolutely worth the effort, though, just to see the world in that larger context. And even though the payoff isn't always as direct as delaying eating one marshmallow now for two marshmallows later, just the practice of working through this and doing your best to exercise that muscle and to put yourself in somebody else's shoes from time to time makes it all the more likely that when you do contribute to solutions or you do identify problems for other people to solve, that they will be very well-informed, very well-rounded out problems and solutions that you're addressing and trying to push forward. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, an action that you can take that will have very positive consequences and lead to a much better tomorrow is to leave a review up on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That would help immensely because that's one of the better ways that I get this show in front of more people. You can also share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it, email it to your mother, or send it to that friend from school who enjoys geeky things. 
And if you're looking to support the show monetarily, there's a way to do that as well. You can go to letsknowthings.com for details. Basically, I've provided some links where you can click to give a buck per episode, or you can create a monthly thing where you give a little bit each month. Whatever you decide to do, if you decide to do something like that, thank you very much. I truly appreciate it. You can find the show notes for this and every other episode that I've published at letsknowthings.com. Just go to the page and then click on the episode in question. There is a Let's Know Things newsletter. You can find that at letsknowthings.com as well. It's essentially a newsletter full of links, lovingly curated by me, things that I found interesting over the past week. You can find me essentially everywhere on the internet, be it Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or Vine, at Colin is my name. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also enjoy my other work. I've written a few dozen books on various subjects, both fiction and nonfiction. You can find those over at colin.io. I've got a blog where I write about all manner of things, different essays on different topics that I find to be interesting. You can find that at exilelifestyle.com. And I have a YouTube show, which you can check out and which I publish twice a week. That is called Consider This, and you can find it by searching for it on YouTube or simply going to considerthis.io. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.